0: Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to talk about the whole dynamic of body and soul today, and how it relates to this very climactic moment in human history, where Yitzchak gives the blessing to Yaakov and not to Esav. But the amazing thing is is Isaac has lost his eyesight at this period in his life. And as we mentioned before, the Medrash says something amazing. How did he lose his eyesight? That when he was bound at the time of the Akeda. And remember, Isaac wasn't a little boy at that point. He was in his 30s. Very important. So he was very consciously giving up his life for God. And Abraham and and Yitzchak were united in this amazing mission of not holding anything back in their lives, not one iota of their being, just giving it all over to God. And at that moment, it says that the angels were crying and that the teardrops of the angels went into Isaac's eyes and that's what caused his quote-unquote blindness. Now, when the Talmud refers to blindness, it doesn't use the word blind. It calls people who can't see that it says that they are flooded with light, flooded with light. So that's a a big insight into what's going on in terms of this dynamic. How is it possible, because this is everybody's question, how is it possible that Yitzchak has arguably the greatest human ever, as a son in Yaakov, right? Yaakov, who has another name, remember, Israel. He's the foundation of the Jewish people. He's the culmination of of Abraham, Yitzhak, and then Yaakov is the culmination of all three, right? How is it possible that Yitzchak is going to give the blessing not to him, but to his other son, who is, like, underachieving in the most maximum way. I mean, and I'm trying to be nice in terms of my description of Asav, because, you know, classically speaking, Asav is actually identified with the evil inclination itself. It says when Yaakov, later on, remember, after this whole event, Asav vows to kill Yaakov, right? He's like, you stole the blessing, and he's not going to be happy till he actually kills Yaakov. So, Yaakov is told to escape, and he goes, and he he marries, and he creates his family. And as he's finally heading back to Israel after this very long exile, an angel comes to him and, and to give him the following report. Asav is waiting for you with 400 soldiers, basically to kill you and to kill your whole family. So the hope was that time would have minimized sort of like Asav's trauma, and that it would be forgotten by this point. By the way, there is a happy ending to this story. They do reconcile on some level, and Asaph does not kill Yaakov or anyone in his family. So that's just important just to put out there. But Yaakov undergoes one of the hardest nights anyone in human history has ever gone through, the night before he confronts Asaph, who he's convinced wants to kill him, and has the huge army there to do it. And during that night, this is the famous night that Yaakov wrestles with an angel and defeats the angel. And so if you look at the Rashi there, the the commentary is that that angel that Yaakov is wrestling with is the ministering angel of Esav. And that it's the Yetzirah itself, the evil inclination itself. So... This was all a long way of saying that Asav, who he wants to give the blessing to, is actually identified with the Yitzhar. In terms of Torah ideology, they're considered almost one in the same. Now, Asav does have a redeeming quality to it. It, Asav's head is buried in the cave of the patriarchs with Adam and Eve and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and... So there is this redeemable aspect of Esav. And so one of the interpretations of why Yitzchak wants to give this blessing to Esav is he wants to take this redeemable quality of him, and we'll explore what, what that quality is in a moment, and just magnify it. In other words, one basic level of understanding this very perplexing thought, which is, How could it be that Isaac actually isn't giving the blessing to to Jacob, knowingly, at this point anyway? Later on, and this is important for people to know, a lot of people miss this point. At the end of the Parsha, Isaac re-ups the blessing to Jacob, this time doing it with with full knowledge. And even after he's given it, while he's still shook up, he's convinced that he was divided by god to give it to jacob so he doesn't even question it even after he's shocked that it happened so that's that's step one that he's sort of reaffirming it because he understands that this is what god wanted and then at the end he on his own very consciously just gives jacob the blessing again so so just in case you think that it was never that isaac was never fully convinced that this is the right thing to do No, he he is fully convinced that it's supposed to go to Jacob. Okay. So we have to figure out like why all these windy paths and let's continue on why he wanted to give it to Asaph to begin with. But but then we have to sort of ask larger questions and see how this ties into the body and the soul and and all the rest. So this is really touching on in terms of acupuncture. This is is one of the meridian points of reality, okay? So by diving deep into this subject, you're really going to be touching on like the the whole realm of Torah or much of it. So remember, we said that Isaac was not blind in the conventional sense, but he had the teardrops of angels in his eyes and that Isaac himself was flooded with light. That that means sort of like he's seeing, like ultimate reality in front of him, and remember, in when all is said and done, when all is said and done, Ain Novado, which means all that exists is God, right? Even evil works for God, even evil works for God. So so what does that mean? So the Balsham Tov explains. Evil. You ready? you ready to have evil explained to you in like a, a simple parable? I mean, that's, that's a tall order, right? But but we're going to do it, thanks to the Baal Shem Tov. So he says that there was a king, and a king had a son. And the son lived in the palace. And the son really, you know, like, was very good. But the king wondered, like, is the son just really good because he's in front of me? Like, how would the son behave if he was far away from me? Would he still be like this upright individual? So he sends his son off to a faraway province, and he hires a harlot to seduce the son. And in this way, he's going to really see what is the moral stature of this son. Is the son going to say, well, my father doesn't see me, so I'm going to kind of do what I want, right? And I can get away with it? Or will the son really show that his essence really is, like, excellent, and he's going to send away the harlot? Which is it going to be? So the king wants to find out. Now the harlot works for the king. The harlot knows that the king wants the son to pass this test. And so there's a problem because the harlot is hired to do her job and she has to do her job. So the whole time, and this is not the end of the story, listen carefully, the whole time that the harlot is seducing the son, the harlot is thinking, please say no, please say no. And that's a very, Beautiful, streamlined understanding of how evil exists in the world and yet it works for God. In other words, evil itself doesn't want you to give into it because it works for God and God is good. But God created this world so that we should have free choice. So there has to be this element of darkness in the world where we can choose to do the right thing. So we have to be given opportunities to choose to do the right thing. And that's the role of the harlot in this story. That's materiality. okay? that's physicality in this world. Right. So so we we, we exist amidst it. But we have to understand that it's just an opportunity for us to serve God through. So let me put that last thought much more simply with another teaching, very short teaching. It says that when the satan, right, the evil inclination, comes to a person, if you say yes to it, it tears its clothes and cries. And if you say no to it, it jumps up and dances. So again, this is the idea how evil can exist in the world, but it's not a separate power from God. Because remember, all of Judaism is predicated on the concept of the oneness of God, and that all that exists is God. Remember, we don't say our God, like to the other religions, we say, we don't say, we do not say, our God is stronger than your God. That is not the message of Judaism. The message of Judaism is, there are no other powers. No other powers exist. They don't exist. There is only God. So anytime that you say Shema, right? Say Cover our, we cover our eyes. We say Shema Yisrael, Hashem alokeinu, Hashem echad. Right? Why are we covering our eyes? I heard this explanation in the name of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. When something is very far away from you, right? You, you have to squint in order to see it. Um. Wait. Let me, let me try that again. Imagine. This sun. You know something? There's so many metaphors. <laughs> They're all crashing into my head and competing with it. They're dueling, dueling metaphors. So let me just put it to you very simply. Sometimes there's something so close to you, the, the only way to see it is to close your eyes. Okay? That's why we cover our eyes for Shema. Because sometimes there's something so close to you, the only way to see it is to close your eyes, right? Because what we see with our eyes, the, 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 the physical realm, materiality, is only one small puzzle piece in the greater reality. And we can, our eyes can fool us. They can trick us into thinking that what we see with our eyes is all that exists. So that when we want to, Say that God is one. We want to see past just this superficial layer of materiality that's in front of us. So we close our eyes, we cover our eyes, so that we can tap into the oneness that informs all of creation. That's the idea, okay? So again, this is getting back to the idea that Yitzchak was, on the one hand, blind, right? Meaning to say his eyes were covered but on the other hand, he was tapping into the oneness that informs everything. He was flooded with light, meaning to say that he even understood the role that of that, that plays in this world. So now let's, let's put it in a more grounded way. So the ideal person, this is the way I, I had it explained to me one time, it always stayed with me, what would you imagine the the superhuman to be, right? A person who is skilled in terms of the ways of this world. He could be a hunter. He could be very active in this world, like a, a master of, of nature. At the same time, though, totally holy. So Esau had the first part of that. And so Yitzchak saw in him, if he was just more holy, the ability to combine these two aspects and be the idealized person and thought that if he gives him the blessing, he might be able to strengthen his spirituality and so that he will be able to achieve this, this ultimate stature. Now, I'll tell you something. It, it's a good thought, right? I mean, obviously, it's coming from Yitzchak Avinu. You know? I mean, it's, it's an amazing thought. It's an amazing goal. Do you know who probably the closest figure in Jewish history is to the person who I just described? Yosef. Yosef was someone who ran like the greatest empire in history, and at the same time was like a total tzaddik, was a total holy person, at the same time running an empire, an ancient empire. Now, listen to this, and I can't give you the source, but I read it one time, and it it just always amazed me. You know that had Esav been more righteous, Esav was supposed to marry Leah, and then Yaakov was supposed to marry Rachel. Because Esav basically forfeited his mission in this world, Yaakov had to take on Aesop's mission as well. That's why Yaakov marries Leah and Rachel. Do you understand? In other words, he had to compensate for Aesop not doing Aesop's job. Aesop was supposed to marry Leah. So when Aesop doesn't marry Leah, Yaakov has to marry Rachel and Leah. So so what if, here's the idea, and it's an amazing thought, Remember, I told you who Esav was, a person of this world, right? If Asaf had married Leah, the child that they would have had would have been Yosef. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that an amazing idea? If Asaf had married Leah, the son, the firstborn son they would have had would have been Yosef. So here you see how Yosef is like this, like when you think what was going on in Yitzchak's mind? Well, he was sort of like imagining this Yosef, right? And by the way, we have this this idea of Mashiach ben Yosef, right? Mashiach ben Davin, Mashiach ben Yosef, right? So there is this like amazing, amazing um, stature to a personality like that. Okay, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Because, you see, if you want to, what's the essential structure? You need light, but then you need the vessels to hold the light. If the vessel can't hold the light, you you haven't got a, you haven't got a business right? You need light and you need vessels. And the vessels have to be able to be expansive enough to hold the light that's coming into them. And the bottom line was, Asaph, you know, all that exists is God, right? So Asaph has some good in him, but he wasn't at a place in his life where he could turn it around and be the proper vessel to hold the light of the blessing that Yitzchak wanted to put in him. It was just a non-starter. And here you see, you know, it says that women have an extra degree of this quality called Bina. Bina is like this supernal kind of knowledge, this is a supernal kind of wisdom. And it's more practical than, than a man's wisdom. And a man's wisdom comes from this place called Chachmah, which is like this like flash, this flash of wisdom, right? This flash of insight, brilliance, ingenuity. But then to be able to take that flash and to integrate it into the world, you need the next step. And that's Bina. And that's this quality that women have more than men. And you, you actually see this dynamic being played out in terms of the birth of a child. You have like the... The flash, that's the that's the um, contribution that a a male makes to the to the um, conception process. And then the woman takes that flash and is able to cultivate it over months and months and months and, and take that flash, which is just not even in this world, really, and to turn it into a human being. Right. That's 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 amazing. And that's this dynamic between Chachma and Bina. And what I'd like to suggest here is that you kind of see this dynamic at work in terms of the the vision of Yitzchak, right? Which is who's flooded with light and sees the macro, like godliness and absolutely everything. And his wife, Rivka, who's going, not him. Yes, but not him or certainly not him not now right so so now let's let's get into let's get into the idea of Jacob having to go through what he has to go through in order to get the blessing because This is very challenging. Why is the world like this? Why is the world so hard, basically? Why does it have to be that Yaakov, Jacob, right? Who represents, you ready for this? The quality, the foundation, more than the quality, the absolute foundation stone in this world of truth. Right? It says, titan emesli Yaakov, give truth to Yaakov. So, Avraham represents chesed, kindness. Yitzchak represents Gevurah, right? Which is like power or strength or judgment, however you want to translate it. And then you have Yaakov, who's the culmination and the reconciliation of those two, who stands for truth. And not just truth, but teferit. He's also teferit, which is really like the harmoniousness of truth. So if he This is making our question even stronger, because if he represents truth, how is it possible that he has to misrepresent himself in order to get the blessing that the world needs in order to survive? He has to disguise himself. And by the way, this is not his idea. And when you read the passages in terms of the conversation between Jacob and 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 Rivka Rebecca right it's all coming from Rivka, who's guiding him, well, guiding him with wisdom by the way, but Jacob hates it, he hates it, he hates that he has to misrepresent himself. You can feel his pain, in in these passages, and he says that that you know he has awesome respect obviously for his father Yitzchak, and he says. He's going to find out and he's going to curse me and I'm going to die. I mean, he has such yira for his father, such respect for his father and such respect for the truth. And Rifka like reassures him and says, it'll be on me. Don't worry. Don't, don't worry. I, I take it upon myself if that happens. So Jacob disguises himself to the point where his mother puts goat hair on the back of his neck. Right? So that if his father takes him to bring him close, that he'll feel Asaph's hairiness, right? And on the tops of his hands, so that if Jacob takes his hand, that he feels Asaph's hairiness and he's convinced. And Yitzchak doesn't fall for it right away and he interrogates Jacob. He goes, You sure you're Asaph? Like, "Ah, are you sure? And Jacob has to keep on saying that he is, which is so heart-wrenchingly painful for him. Okay, so let's get back to our question. Why does the truth, or what is the truth? Because it's very easy to hear this story and go, well, I guess Jacob doesn't really stand for the truth, otherwise he wouldn't have done any of this stuff. It's a very easy question to Launch at this. So we have to actually ask ourselves, how do we define the truth? And so I heard from Rabbi Grossman something very, very, very clear, compelling. The truth is what God wants. That's the truth. The truth is what God wants. And God wanted Yaakov to have the blessing. So, by the way, there's another nice piece of imagery that Rashi brings. He says, because Yaakov really was the firstborn, spiritually speaking. So, but you say, well, Esav came out of the womb first. So Esav is the firstborn. What are you talking about? So Rashi brings a very interesting example. He says, if you think of a thin tube, like imagine like a thin tube, Test tube, okay? Thin glass test tube. And you put, let's say, a blue marble in first. Let's say that stands for Yaakov. And then you put a red marble in afterwards. That stands for Asaph, okay? So the blue marble came in first. The blue marble was the first. But if you turn it over, what's going to come out first? The red marble the one that came in second is going to come out first. Do you understand? This is the imagery that Rashi presents to show you that on the most fundamental level, Yaakov really was the firstborn. And certainly, when you think that God, before the creation of the world itself, envisioned the Jewish people before the creation of the world itself, and that Yaakov is Israel, that really does make him the first. Okay, let's return back to our question. Why is it so hard to enact the truth in this world? If the world was built for truth, why why is it so hard? So we have to go back to Basically, the foundation of everything that I've been telling you for years and years and years and years and years, which is the question that everybody has, which is, if there is a God, why is the world so messed up? (laughs) Right. Everybody has this question, whether you can articulate it or not. Everyone has this question. And there's a beautiful, simple answer that the Torah gives, which is because the world isn't finished yet. You know why the world is messed up? Because it's not finished yet. And that's why you're here. That's why I'm here. We're all here to be partners with God to finish the world. To bring about that vision that God had of the world before he even created the world, which is a world of perfection. A world without war, without hunger, without hatred. And that's what we're doing here, to bring about that vision. And we do that with the Torah and the Mitzvah. Okay, so now we have to ask ourselves, why are the rabbis so against Asav? And this is a really big question. And I'd like to give you the following answer. Asav comes from the word in Hebrew, asui. Asui means <clears throat> asui means made, as in completed. And one of the strange things about Asav is he was born with the body of a hairy man at birth, which is unusual. In other words, he was covered with hair, and he was like a finished product at birth. And this is the total opposite of what the Jewish vision is, meaning to say we're never complete until our last breath. We certainly aren't complete with our first breath. And now, if you think of it on an even deeper level, The idea is that God is making us partners with him in terms of finishing the world. And if what you stand for, if what you believe about yourself is that you're a finished product, well, then you're standing in the way of the progress of the world then, aren't you? Since the whole nature of the world is trying to unfold and complete itself because it isn't finished, If the energy that you're bringing to the world is that I am finished, and keep in mind that each person is a miniature of the cosmos, so to the extent that you say, I am finished, you are shutting down the destiny of the world. So, you know, on the macro level, Esau really is the antithesis to the Jewish vision. Okay. Now listen to this. The first three words of the Torah, this is, and I'm telling you, the Medrash. And remember, what did we say? Yaakov stands for the quality of emet, emes, truth. Okay? The Medrash says, God's stamp on this world is truth. And how do you see it? Because... Take the first three words of the Torah. This is the Medrash I'm telling you right now. Take the first three words of the Torah. Breishis bara Elokim, which means, you know, out of beginnings, God created the world, right? Breishis bara Elokim. If you take the last three letters of those words, the last three letters of those words, it spells out the word emet, Emes, truth. But you want to hear something? Because I have a question on that. Why is truth being spelled out of order? (laughs) If God God wants to spell and put the stamp of truth on creation, spell it in order. Spell it as the word emes. Right? All the letters are out of order in those first three words. Brachis ends with a tough, Bara ends with an Olive. Elohim ends with a mem. It's not, and and we make such a point that the word truth is spelled in order. Why? Because one of the special qualities of truth is that the word emet is the first letter of the olive base, mem is the middle letter of the olive base, and tough is the last letter of the olive base. Because if something's true, it's true forever. You see, I think this is such an important point you have certain things, societal things, which become sacred cows, certain practices that grow up in in secular society, which aren't necessarily in accordance with the Torah, often they're against the Torah, but they become so sacred in, 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 in secular society that if you challenge them, you're considered either primitive or a horrible person, okay? So, what can this be compared to? Now, back in the day, I want to give this analogy, right? Back in the day, if you crossed a desert, how would and people cross deserts all the time, right? How would you navigate through the desert? How would you do it? So let me tell you how you wouldn't do it. Okay? No one would tell you who is a skilled, you know, navigator. No one would tell you the following. Do you see that huge sand dune up ahead? Go to that and take a right. And then do you see in the far off distance that other towering sand dune? When you get there, take a left. Do you know why no one gave you directions in terms of navigating the desert in terms of sand dunes? Because at night, the winds blow and all of the sand dunes go away. And they get rearranged into other sand dunes. So if you want to navigate, you have to navigate by the stars. You have to navigate by what's forever. And that's the mitzvot of the Torah. They're forever. The things that become societal sacred cows, right? Like, they last for maybe... A generation, maybe a few generations, maybe 100 years, maybe 200 years, and then they blow away. One of the most famous books I really recommended, it's called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And it talks about the whole idea of paradigms shifting. The whole notion of shifting paradigms comes from this book. It's amazing. And it goes through the history of science, and it tells you how certain ideas were so lodged in the collective consciousness that they wouldn't go away. Like, I'll give you an example. I don't know if this is in the book. It's been a while since I read it. But Aristotle posited that the most divine shape was the circle or the sphere. And therefore, the orbits of planets had to be circular because they were in the celestial spheres, which was this very divine place. So they had to reflect the divinity of motion, which would be circular. And so, remember, the the ancients were like really good astronomers, like that was like the earliest science to become super advanced, was like astronomy. And you get to people like Kepler, Copernicus and and, and they're taking such exact measurements and they're like "Eh, it doesn't seem so circular (laughs) but Aristotle said that it was a circle yeah but it doesn't really (laughs) fit with like what I'm observing it's like well Aristotle can't be wrong and so they'd fudge the math to make it fit like Aristotle and then finally, they were like, we've just got to get rid of Aristotle. <laughs> and then they realized, you know what, and Kepler really was that person. They realized, no, the orbits of planets are elliptical, not circular. The paradigm changed. And now a whole new rush of wisdom, scientifically speaking, comes into the world. And you've got all sorts of paradigm shifting. But when it comes to morality, we have what we call tarat emet, which means navigating by the stars, right? Social mores are going to come and go, and they're going to present themselves and even create a stranglehold on what's considered right and wrong. But the Torah outlasts them all. And so when we want to navigate through this desert, which is our lives, which is history, which is exile, we navigate by the stars. So now let's get back to this idea. Why is it so hard? Why is truth so difficult to enact in this world? Why? So it gets back to this idea that the world isn't finished yet. Remember, the last three letters of those first three words spells the word truth, but not in its proper order. And that's our job, to take the truth, which has been implanted in this world, and to arrange it and to reveal it so that it becomes extant to everyone, so that everyone can see the oneness of God and the ultimate truth. That's our job. Truth is in the world, but the letters are out of order. (laughs) Now listen to this. You know, the first seven days of creation is a microcosm of the 7,000 years of the history of this world. And the last thousand years, seven correlates with Shabbos. The Messianic period is called Yom Shekulo Shabbos, the day that will be all Shabbos. Now look at what the Torah says at the very end of the seventh day. The last three words are bara, elohim, laasos. Those are the last three words of the seventh day. And when we make Kiddush, we recite that, the finishing of creation, right? On the Sabbath day, which is like, you know which is a miniature of of the perfection of the world, right? It's like the Garden of Eden is is Shabbos, like a miniature of that. So it's appropriate that we're talking about the end of creation, the seventh day when we're making Kiddush, as we welcome Shabbos. Bara Elohim La'asos. Do you know what the last three letters of those last three words spells? Emet, truth. And guess what? It's in the proper order. Because when we work our way through history, the truth will be revealed in its most potent way, right? In its most revealed way. And that will be the sign that we've done our job, right? We've been partners with God in terms of taking the truth that's in this world and revealing it. Okay. So now I'd like to offer that as an answer for why Jacob has to go through what he has to go through in order to get the blessing. Jacob, who stands for truth, right? But he stands for truth with the letter still not completely arranged yet. Right? He's working within that structure to reveal what the actual truth is. And you know what? It turns out that he does because through this process, Yitzchak says, no, 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 no. It was you all along. Yitzchak doesn't leave confused from this episode. He goes, no, 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 no. this is right. This is, this is what I meant. So you see in this whole episode a miniature of the working out of the revelation of truth in this world. Okay. Now I want to go deeper. I want to go deeper. When, when, Eze- when Yaakov comes to Yitzchak for the blessing... Remember, he's wearing the clothes of Asaph. Very, very interesting. And that's Rivka. Rivka dresses up uh, Yaakov in in Asaph's clothes so that he'll smell like Asaph. But these clothes are really special. The Midrash wants to give us the history of these clothes. (laughs) Now, this is going to take us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And this is going to give us some amazing insights about body and soul. Okay? Yitzchak is like unsure. Remember, who is this? Who is this person? It, the, the voice is like Yaakov, but the exterior is like Asav. Okay? By the way, one of the commentaries, this amazing commentary. You know, when when Yitzchak says the voice is like Yaakov, that's your inner essence. And the exterior is like Asav. One of the commentators say that what Yaakov did at that moment was he made himself into this idealized person. Because his inner quality remained righteous and his outer quality, being able to navigate through a situation as complex as this, showed a mastery of the world, and that was that idealized person that Yitzchak wanted to bless from the very beginning. Do you see that that Yaakov actually does become that person during this process? Very, very amazing. But anyway, Yitzchak is still unsure, and he smells the garment evasive, and he goes. Ah, he's very reassured. He says it smells like the field because he knows that Asav is a person of the field. Now, that word field is used in the Torah in another place. And where is it used? The Garden of Eden. So he says, ah, I can smell paradise in you. Now, that, of course, was the essence of Yaakov that he was smelling, right? Because Yaakov really was this divine creature. Okay, so then Midrash wants to ask this amazing question. What are these clothes that Yaakov was wearing? And now we have to go back to something that I think I think everyone should know this. You know, everyone should know this piece of information because it changes the way you think about everything once you know it. And it's, it's unfortunate that, that, that more people don't know it. You see, when human beings were first created, Adam and Chava, right? Adam and Eve, when we were first were created, we were creatures of light. Creatures of light. And you know, they say that if you look at your hand, your fingernails, that that really was like what, what their skin was made out of. So there was a physicality to them, but not a fleshy, a fleshy physicality the way we know ourselves now. And the Or HaKhayim says something just amazing. That before we ate from the tree of knowledge, this world was like a two-story house where we could go up and down at will. In other words, we were creatures of light that could go up to the heavenly realms and down at will. That this whole world was like, there was no ceiling separating heaven and earth. And by the way, if you know anything about architecture, do you know what a support beam is? Like sometimes you see a pillar that connects the floor to the ceiling, okay? And that pillar isn't just decorative. That's called a support beam. It's actually holding up the ceiling, okay? So now imagine this realm that the Garden of Eden was before we ate from the Tree of Knowledge, where we could go to the second floor, to the first floor, to the heavens, to the earth, up and down at will. And there was a support beam holding up that two-story structure. Okay? Do you know what that support beam was? You ready for this? That was the tree of life. That's what the tree of life was. Did you ever wonder why the tree of life was so great? The tree of life was that letter Vov of the Yudke Vavke, that Vav which connects this world to the higher realms. That Vav, that Vav was the Eitz Chayim. And do you know what happened when we ate from the tree of knowledge? Like that support beam was damaged. Or it shrank. Let's just say it shrank down. And all of a sudden, the second floor collapsed, and we just had the first floor. And now we had a ceiling separating heaven and earth. Do you see it? Do you you see it? Remember, God said, eat from all of the trees. The first thing that God says to us, most people think the first thing God said to us was no. No. Okay, I just want to welcome you all by saying, no, (laughs) do not eat from the tree of knowledge. That is not the first thing that God said. Look in the Torah. It says, God said, eat from all of the trees, except for that one. In other words, enjoy, participate, create this amazing experiential you know, experience with your life in this world. Like, really, remember, it says in the Talmud Yerushalmi, at the end of 120, each one of us is going to be judged if we didn't eat a delicious fruit or if we didn't participate in the beautiful things that this life has to offer us. Because that's part of experiencing God, is experiencing the beauty of this world. It says that, Samson Raphael Hirsch was once taking a trip to the Alps. And someone thought that that was, you know, like a little bit of a waste of time. Like, you know, why doesn't he have his nose in a book? <laughs> like, what are you doing going to the Alps? And he said, at the end of 120, God is going to ask me, why didn't you see my Alps? So that's very much this idea. God begins the discussion with human beings by saying, eat from all the fruits, but not that one. So can you imagine if we ate from the tree of life first, and that by doing so, we solidified that pillar connecting heaven and earth so that we could remain creatures of life? Like, imagine, like, the story playing out in that way. And amazing, right? Okay, so after, so to speak, the ceiling collapses, this world becomes much more material. This world becomes much more physical, and we ourselves as a species, as a creation, become much more physical. In the Torah itself, God, before we left the Garden of Eden, and if you look at the deeper commentaries, All of them say that this little detail is out of order, okay? That what it really means that God clothed us, it says God put clothing on us, what that really means is that God made us these creatures of flesh. Now, this was the original garment. This was the original garment. And the amazing thing is, the commentators describe this garment in wildly different ways. And I'm going to give you two utter opposites. And you're going to see in a moment how they're actually saying the same thing. They're going to, they, you, I'm going to give you two thoughts. They couldn't be further apart from each other. And you're going to see how they're saying the same thing in a moment. The Targum Yonasan says, you know what that garment was? You know what our flesh, you know what our flesh is? You ready for this? Snakeskin. How how alarming is that? How alarming is that? We are clothed in snakeskin. In other words, we listen to the snake. That created physicality. And our physicality is our undoing. And it's snakeskin. Okay, that's, 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 you know, I I was giving this over the other day and someone said, is snakeskin a bad thing? And I'm like, unless we're talking about an $800 pair of shoes, yes, it's a bad thing. (laughs) Okay, so, so now you ready for the opposite. Let's hear something super positive now. The Bala Turim says, you know what that you know what garments God put us in? The big day kahuna, the clothing of the high priest. I mean, can you get more? Can you get more opposite than that? So, so now I want to show you how it's saying the same thing. Okay? Cuz now that we're physical creatures living in a physical world, you have two paths before you. One is to run after your own physicality, or one is to see your physicality as a projection of your soul in this world and to elevate the physical by raising it up spiritually. That's the job of the high priest. In other words, are is your is your body the clothing of the high priest, meaning to say is your body an extension of your soul? In which case you understand that the job of this whole world is to take your soul and to lift up all the physicality and raise up all the physicality around you. That's that's the high priest's take on it. Or we run after our own physicality, and we become limited by that. Let me put it into different language. Let me tell you how the Eish Kodesh, uh, the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto, Zecharia Tzadok Levrucha, how he asks it. He says, "Is your body a covering of your soul, or is your body an extension of your soul?" Amazing, amazing way of trying to understand who am I? What am I? What is this world? What am I doing in this world? What is going on? So it says in Eov, the book of Job, which the Talmud says was written by Moshe Rabbeinu. Okay, like Moses wrote the book of Job. Wow, pretty amazing. One of the passages is in it is, from my flesh I see God. Isn't that interesting? Like, imagine the, how an angel looks at the world. An angel looks at the world from the standpoint of spirituality looking even into greater spirituality. There is no physical barrier. It's just spirituality, contemplating, the vastness of greater spirituality. That's how an angel sees this world. How do you and I see this world? (laughs) Our soul sees this world through this medium of flesh. (laughs) But in doing so, we see wondrous things. Like imagine this kaleidoscope. Like angels see it through one way and then you turn it and all of a sudden it's like, like the crystals align and the materiality of this world aligns and the flesh of our body aligns and you see the truth through a completely different medium, through my body, through my flesh, I see God. whole different point of view. And guess what? We don't, mostly, our point of view, you know, do you ever... Have you ever had this experience? You're riding along a, a highway, like Highway One has this from Los Angeles to um, San Francisco. But they have this all over the world, where uh, alongside it says um, they have like a little place where you can park your car, and it says like a it's like a scenic little place where where you can take a snapshot, right? Most of our life is going to be out of our body. You know, 120 compared to the eternality of the soul, it's it's fast. <laughs> it seems like it's long. It's fast. It's really fast. We get to see God through flesh. It's like a little tour. It's like, a, oh yeah, let's pull over there and see God through flesh. Okay, back in the car, we're souls again. <laughs> this is like a, a vista to see God, like short. Enjoy it. Oh, look over there. You didn't see that? All right. All right. look! over there. Over there, over there. Ah. ah, amazing. Okay, back in the car. Back in the car. <laughs> so, So this is what it is. This is what it is. We're in this world to reveal truth, but it's a windy path. And there's a lot of risk that, that takes place. It's, it's, it can be very treacherous to reveal the truth. But, but Yaakov, remember, our forefathers are fighting these epic, epic battles, these climactic battles. And it's like, the war is won. Now we have to go out and win the war. The war is won. Now go out there and win the war. Meaning to say that that these epic battles have been fought and won by our holy fathers and mothers, and now we just have to go along that path and see it through, which is also a challenge. But the destiny has already been put into the world in terms of the victory of these ideas, that these things will take place. And as I mentioned to you before, the word truth is the last letters of the first three words of the Torah. Breshis bara elokim, but it's spelled out of order. And then at the end of the seventh day, which represents the Messianic era, bara elokim sos. truth gets spelled out, but in its proper order. Truth becomes revealed. And how do we do it? How do we do it? We do it by directing our souls that they should shine through our bodies, and that this physical world shouldn't block our light, but rather it should magnify our light. And that's our role in the process. Okay. What follows now are some questions and answers.
1: Be careful not to blind ourselves to Jacob's faults. He's a rotter until he has the wrestling match with with the angel he deceives his father and our empathy is with Isaac and with Esau when Isaac trembles and Esau cries okay where in the world is a sibling going to deny his brother or his sister food when they ask for food and they are are hungry in the real sense of the word okay and then we have the shift the blessing and may I say that I'm paraphrasing in some senses a brilliant of our Torah, the modern Orthodox commentary on this by Rabbi Lord Sachs of Blessed Memory. He points out that there are consequences for this, of this, of this. The consequences are respect to Laban, where Laban says to Jacob, he says to him, in this place, we do not put the younger before the older. In other words, there's a measure for measure being taking place there. There's a punishment for Jacob's deceit being ta- taking place with respect to, to the way Laban de- de- deceives himself. And the other consequences are the tensions which are between, Laban, between Rachel and, 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 and Leah, which reverberate for the family. So I'm a little bit concerned when one tends to praise Jacob as being the paragon of virtue when he's not that, he has to do teshuva, he has to redeem himself. And I see the fight with the angel that evening as being the, the quality of redemption when he appreciates this. And may I say one other thing, and Lord Sachs points this out. He says that ultimately, Jacob receives the blessing which his father was going to give him in any event, without the deception. That is when he has to leave for twenty years, he gets the blessing his father was going to give him. There was no need for him to deceive to, to deceive his father in the matter. So those are my thoughts.
0: Okay, so let me respond to a a, a couple of aspects to it. I, I do see it somewhat differently. I would say the following. Which is first of all, this was Rifka's idea, not Jacob's idea. And so he is at the behest of his mother's wishes in doing this. And I think that's an important thing to point out because it removes this presumption of a scheming individual coming up with this plan on his own. So I think, that that's, I think that's important to, to point out. Number two, when it says that Yitzchak trembled, he didn't tremble according to the rabbis, that he had been deceived in this way. He trembled because it says, if you look at the Rashi there, Yitzchak saw beneath himself the gates of hell had opened below him. And he realized that he just narrowly averted doing the worst thing possible, which was giving this spiritual heritage, this stewardship over it, into the hands of the wrong person. That's how the rabbis explain it. Next, I would say, in terms of his comeuppance, although you didn't use that word, that the Mida keneged uh, mita thing, the retribution that Jacob receives in the house of Levin, right? I would explain it the following way, that it wasn't punishment or comeuppance for what he had done. But rather, if you're thrown into the gladiator pit to save your life, you're going to get covered with blood. Meaning to say, you may emerge victorious, but you're not going to look so good at the end of that match. In other words, if the quality of truth is thrown into a world, and by the way, all the holy books describe this world as, they call it, olama sheker, which means this: we live in a world of lies, right? Because this, this world isn't finished yet. And so what we see with our own eyes, like I was saying earlier, we cover our eyes for Shema, right? Because we want to tap into the, the innermost point of the oneness of this world and not be deceived by what our eyes see. If truth is going to emerge from a world where truth isn't completely extant yet, it's going to emerge looking damaged. And so Yaakov is going to have to pay a price for waging this war. And and those are the consequences of the evolution of this world spiritually, as opposed to the comeuppance done to a person who has a little bit of Trickery within him that has to be refined and rooted out.
1: With respect to the evil which is being done between her and the prince, I cannot accept any diminishment of culpability. Yes. Or anything done to the six million. Yes. And to any of those people who were um, the victims of Stalin's genocide. Yes. That was pure evil yes there's no redeeming quality there yes there's no diminishment of culpability in that in that respect.
0: first of all i totally agree with you and what i would add to this is that parable with the harlot first of all it was said before the holocaust but that aside it's trying to reconcile a larger question which is how can evil exist at all in other words is there one power in this world, or are there two powers? Is there good and evil, or is there only oneness? Because if you say there's only oneness, we have to recognize the fact that evil exists in this world, and then we have to say that evil works for God if there's only going to be oneness. So, therefore, what is the relationship between evil and the oneness of God? Okay, now, having said that, to address your point, in this story... Evil, it's almost like on on an angelic level, right? Where evil is very aware of the role that it's playing. But I think that you have progressive levels of concealment and darkness where you have in this world personalities in real life who are so committed to wrongdoing that they have no redeeming quality to them whatsoever. as, as, As you are saying, And that is the most challenging thing for a believing person because there you have the existence of ultimate evil. And then how do you say that all that exists is God, which we must say, otherwise we're absolutely gutting the foundation of Torah and Judaism. So this is where you have what's called in Torah, Hester Panim which means God says, I will hide my face. And then God even says, I will hide in my hiding, which means that God will be so concealed, you won't even know that God is concealing himself because all you see is total and absolute concealment. It won't even occur to you that there can be anything behind this other than the evil that you're facing with your own eyes. And that's what we had with the Holocaust. Certainly.